Okay, check one. Hello? Am I on? All right, how's everyone this morning? Merry Christmas. Uh, it's uh, that season, you know, the frost is on the ground every morning. I'm sure most of you are starting a fire in your fireplace about now. Um, right? Scraping the ice off your windshield. All the signs that it's Christmas time. All right, this morning we are not necessarily having a Christmas message, although we're sharing about Jesus, so in that sense it's always about Christmas. It's always about Jesus with us. We want to pick up uh, this, the story of, this, of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Um, it's going to take us three Sundays to get through this story. I, I tried to do it in one, or I tried to do it in two. Now it's looking like at least three. Um, in John chapter 4, as Jesus discusses with this woman uh, about her life and about God's plan, uh, he says to the woman, the time is coming and, and is already here when uh, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for anyone who will worship him that way. Uh, this morning we want to talk about what God is looking for in worship. And it's a very important, uh, perhaps one of the most important things about our life, that uh, as believers we worship God. But what does that mean? And uh, as we worship, what is God looking for? What does he want from us in our worship? Uh, clearly, the Samaritan woman was a bit confused, and likewise, really, were the Jews about what worship is. And as I studied this, I started seeing maybe some areas in my own life where I might also be confused. And at times, maybe we get the wrong emphasis or focus in worship. And so Jesus makes it crystal clear in this passage what worship is about and uh, what the focus of that is, a very important subject. Uh, let me review just a little bit. Um, this story is really one tightly woven story that I just couldn't talk about all in one tightly woven sermon. So uh, let's back up a bit and get a, a, a bit of a review. This, this story and the story of Nicodemus are very much parallel stories. And uh, it's, it's helpful to see the story of the woman at the, at the well uh, up against the story of Nicodemus. They are very much contrasting figures. Nicodemus was a religious teacher, well-knowledged in the scriptures, uh, was well-reputed for his great teaching of the Bible. And yet it says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and it's very clear at the end of his encounter with Jesus that he leaves in darkness. In fact, Jesus says, or John actually says, that uh, the men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And he was really clearly talking about Nicodemus, who was not willing to let the light of Christ penetrate his heart and mind. But interestingly, the Samaritan woman was this uh, a woman, a Samaritan, which meant she was really looked down on by the Jews, um, not well educated in Scripture, uh, not, just by being a Samaritan meant that a good chunk of her theology was missing because the, uh, the, the Samaritans had rejected a lot of the theology of the Jews. Um, and yet she comes, interestingly, it says at high noon, not in the dark, but at noonday bright, and uh, she walks away as one who really receives the light. And by the end of this story, she's proclaiming, you know, I found the Messiah. And she sees what this great religious teacher did not. So those stories are very much contrasted. And uh, as we interpret and look at what, uh, what this story is about, it's helpful to look at it through, uh, through the parallel account of Nicodemus. Um, and in the, in, the, in the introduction to this uh, that we talked about two weeks ago, uh, Jesus says, you know, the woman comes, Jesus is there, he's thirsty, it's the middle of the day, Jesus asks her for water, she can't believe that he would talk to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman, and ask for a drink. And Jesus says these amazing words, he says, if you only knew the gift of God, and who it is that was talking to you, you would ask of me, and I would give you uh, living water. And in this passage, Jesus is helping this woman understand the answer to those two questions. First of all, what is God's gift? And secondly, who is Jesus? And the second part of the story really focuses more on this idea of who Jesus is. And uh, he explains to her that this living water uh, will take away all thirst. 
And it's clear that this woman had been pursuing, filling her life, satisfying her soul, getting her, um, her hunger and her cravings met through men and through wrong relationships and through uh, sinful, uh, the pursuit of sinful desires. And Jesus tells her, you know, there's a better way. Uh, you know, get married five times, it's time to quit and try a different strategy. Try God, okay, it's a good plan. And He can satisfy you. He can fill the things that you are trying to fill your life with in these worldly pleasures and worldly pursuits. And uh, it's a great picture of what God offers all of us. Uh, the filling of our soul, the quenching of the thirst of our soul with Himself. Um, and the idea is that once we have experienced God's love and goodness, if we've really tasted His love and goodness, that we would no longer so desire the things of this world. Uh, not that we can't enjoy them, but we wouldn't crave them as more important than God. And so that's what this woman needed. And uh, with that disclosure about, uh, as, as Jesus you know, unfolds this and talks about her husband's and her relationship problems and the thirst of her soul, uh, we don't know if she changes the subject because she's uncomfortable or if she changes the subject because she rightly identifies that Jesus has truth. The text kind of leaves it a little bit vague and obscure. I'll let you theorize, you know, whichever you want it to be. But uh, she, she says this to Jesus, Sir, you must be a prophet, surely. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? But Jesus replied, Believe me, the time is coming, the hour is coming, when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father here or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know so little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, and is already here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for anyone who will worship the Spirit that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must also worship in spirit and in truth. It's interesting in this, in this story, uh, again, we don't really know why she comes up with this question. But Jesus has, this, has just disclosed, he really has shed the light into her life. And he says, you know, do you have a husband? She says, no, I'm not married. Uh, by the way, some people believe that she left the options open because she thought maybe Jesus was like, you know, hitting on her. And so she didn't want to, you know, close that door because he seemed like a nice guy. And uh, maybe he could, you know, be husband number six or seven or whatever it was. Um, and that's, that's certainly possible. But Jesus shines the light of truth into her life and he lays out this light that's really been pursuing fulfill, fulfillment and satisfaction through very ungodly means. And she uh, comes back with this question uh, about worship about the necessary elements of worship. Now you could say, and some people say, well, you know, she was just trying to say, change the subject. She was feeling very uncomfortable, and she wanted to change the subject. So that may well be the case. But it's interesting the subject she chose. You know, she picks, she's already identified this guy as a prophet, a very wise person, a religious teacher. You know, if you're already in hot water, why jump into theology with a prophet? Okay, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me if you're just kind of being defensive. Um, you know, it's kind of like debating, you know, predestination with Calvin or something. You know, it may not be, you may not want to go there. But, uh, and, and it's, it's very likely, and I really believe that, that deep down inside, this was a genuine question. She may have been changing the subject, she may have been uncomfortable, but it was a matter of her of importance. And she wasn't just wanting to debate doctrine with Jesus. I believe that there was some depth and truth to her question. And it's interesting to me that, you know, as I thought about this, I thought, well, you know, obviously this lady's wrecked her life. She's obviously won't even go to the well with other women. She's uh, isolated from her community because she's uh, feeling so much shame about her life and her lifestyle. Why would she really care about worship? But as I thought about it, I thought, well, you, you know, Tim, you dummy. You know, everybody has an interest in worship. And we tend to think that worship is something like really religious people do, people who walk the straight and narrow, people who are you know, trying to do it right. 
But as I thought about my own experience meeting people, I have found that some of the people most concerned about worship are really some of the worst people. You know, people who never go to church, who, you know, have lifestyles that are a shambles. But it's interesting how many of them will talk about God and talk about worship and talk about, you know, church and the Bible. Because there's a universal principle that we were all designed for worship. At the very core of our being, there was within us a, a desire to worship something. And it doesn't matter how screwed up, how messed up, how sinful your life is, uh, that, that desire remains. Um, I remember maybe a year ago, news came out of this, uh, these, these female strippers who were starting this Bible study. And uh, I just thought, that's kind of odd, you know. And uh, it came out that several of these women had actually come to Christ. And they said, you know, uh, these ladies are hurting and they, they will talk about God. So they were going back into these bars witnessing and sharing Christ and they found a very ready, willing audience. And the truth and the reality is that people are built to worship. And no matter how sinful, no matter how messed up our life is, it is innate in us to worship something. And it's a longing of our heart. And you see this in this woman. Uh, no matter how messed up her life is, um, she has this question, what is, and the, at the heart of her, her question is, what is necessary? And uh, some translations miss that word, but it's in, in the Greek. Uh, it has the idea, you know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, uh, but you Jews insist that it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Um, it is a universal aspect of worship, and the word that's used here is used throughout the Greek, the, the Greek New Testament for worship. Um, and it's very interesting because it really highlights this idea that everybody wants to worship. Uh, that there are some very universal aspects to worship. And they're, they're expressed well in this word. Uh, the word is proskuneo. Uh, it's a word that the Greeks came up with. But it fits worship so well that the Old Testament translators who translated the Old Testament into Greek easily could use this word because it captured many Ju Judaistic Old Testament ideas of worship. Um, and uh, it expresses really what's true of worship in many cultures really around the world. People everywhere have this common interest in worship, and it's, it's um, described well in this word. And the word literally means to kiss something, to kiss toward. And it's very ancient Greek meaning. It simply meant to kiss. And slowly it evolved to mean to kiss the ground or to kiss your hand towards something, to blow a kiss, okay, as a form of worship. Um, and its, it's, it's idea is very central to, to what worship is. Well, let's look at it. I want to look, we're going to do an in-depth word study. Okay, some of you who really like word studies, you'll like this. Those of you who don't like word studies, you can take a nap, okay, and we'll call you back to school in a few minutes. Um, the idea has... It's kind of interesting to me, this idea of worship being kissing the ground. Now, I haven't kissed the ground much lately. Uh, mostly when I kiss the ground, it's because I trip and fall on my face. Uh, I don't deliberately kiss the dirt. Uh, where does that come from? Well, it's a really, really interesting image of two dynamics at work in worship. The first dynamic is that of wanting to kiss something. Uh, if you want to kiss something, why do you want to kiss it? Any volunteers? Okay because it's attractive, because you want to be very close and intimate and personal with this person, uh, because there's something that draws you to it. Okay, it's hard for me not to kiss little babies, you know, whether mine or somebody else's. They're just adorable and cute and sweet, and I hold them, and I just want to kiss them, right? Because you want to you be close to them, you want to connect with them. There's something very special about the touch and intimacy and closeness of a kiss. It is an expression of adoration and affection. And it, at the heart of worship is this idea of, of adoration and affection, of wanting to be with, uh, and wanting to be with because we love and adore and cherish this, this person. Because okay, so that's part of what worship is. It's this desire to be close to this divine being, to somehow connect and touch with it. But there was a problem. They didn't kiss the, the idol. They didn't kiss the God. They didn't kiss... Uh, instead, they kissed the dirt. Okay, that's just wrong, okay? Now, sometimes, you know, you kiss the toad because you believe the toad will turn into a prince. 
But there's no reward in kissing dirt. Why did they kiss the dirt? Seems kind of nasty. Well, there's two dynamics, and they're very much in tension with each other. And on the one hand is this desire to be close to, to adore, to worship, to kiss, to be near this God. But the reality is that gods are not the things that we can get close to. Gods are much higher than us. And the Greek idea was that gods transcended, they were outside of our realm and our sphere, uh, that they were much greater and more powerful than us. Uh, and so you just don't walk up and you know, smack a god on the lips. It's a good way to get lightning bolts and really bad things to happen to you. So, because of your longing and desire to be close, to adore, to worship, to have this affection for this God, instead you settle for kissing the ground where the God has trodden. Right? You lower yourself. You can't approach the God directly, but you get as close as you can, and at the very best, you kiss toward the God. You kiss the ground where he has he's walked. And that's worship. And that's a great picture of these two tensions that are true in worship. On the one hand, wanting to be close, but wanting to be close to something that's much greater than us, much bigger than us, and in many ways much higher than us. Something that we can't achieve an equal status to. Uh, here in Thailand, we see this practiced with the king uh, regularly. Uh, you, if you all live here very long, you know that you don't approach the king of Thailand on an equal plane. And if you see the pictures, they always come well below at the king's feet. Why? To show this idea that the king is above them, that they're not equal. Well, how much more true is that in worshiping a god or worshiping the god? You want to be close, but you can't get too close because it's bigger than us, greater than us. And so there's an, a sense of awe and reverence. And so those two things come together in worship. Love, adoration, and affection, and overwhelming awe and reverence at the majesty of this being. Okay, that's worship. Uh, the word is also used, interestingly, uh, almost as a substitute or a synonym for prayer. And it was assumed that when you came before God and you bowed, and eventually this idea of worship, of kissing the ground, was so identified with bowing, because you have to bow to kiss the ground, um, that worship became known as bowing before a God, bowing before a deity. And so in time, the word really developed this idea of bowing. And some translations will use the idea of prostrating or bowing before God as a form of worship. And the idea is because you bow to kiss the ground. You bow to lower yourself. You bow to be below this God. But always when you do this, there, there was the assumption that you would pray, that you would talk to this deity. And in doing, you would do one of two things, or both. First, you would petition this deity, this God, because he is greater than you and you need his help. Uh, the reason people worship gods is because they realized the problems in their life were much bigger than they were. And they needed some being much bigger than them to help solve those problems. And so they would invent gods that had powers they did not, that had control over nature that they didn't. And they would go and they would pray to this god to help them, to give them crops, to give them children, to protect them from their enemies. So petition was an important part of this process of worship, of going to this god who we love, who we're standing in awe of and petitioning him to help us. And then as he does that, the second part of, of the prayer would be that of thanksgiving. Of, uh, as this God rescues you, as he saves you, as he uh, helps you out of your difficulties, you then thank him. And oftentimes along with this would be offerings. Uh, offerings can be one of two things. One, it's a way of buying the God's favor, but it can also be a way of showing thanksgiving. So that's what this word captures. And it's interesting this lady uses this word. Uh, it really represents what's universally true around the world about what worship is. All the great religions of the world have some elements of this. You know, we don't, we don't worship Bob the janitor guy. You know, we worship beings that are greater than us. Man-made gods, man-made images may be idols, but they're idols that are often given power greater than what we have. Uh, there's a sense of awe and reverence in the presence of these gods, whoever they are. Um, we, um, we pray to them. We trust in them. They give a sense of hope that some power greater than us can help us out of our jams and out of our difficulties. Um, it's interesting, in, in the more modern world, 
there are the great religions that worship these, these gods. Um, in the West, there's, there's more uh, a different kind of worship. Uh, we don't, to a large extent, we have thrown out God. But it's interesting, there's still this longing to worship something. Uh, Thailand may have its king, which is highly honored and venerated. But I think it's very interesting that, in the United States anyway, uh, one of the f- recent kings that was worshipped was the king of rock and roll. And, um, you know, when Elvis Presley came on the scene, it was really quite an amazing phenomenon, because for really the first time in history, uh, teens had something to worship that was flesh and blood. And uh, I call it worship because in many ways, you, know, you watch these movies of these people back then at concerts, swooning, kissing the stage, you know, taking his sweaty, slimy, you know, rags, he'd wipe the sweat off, and kissing it. Okay, well, there's a, there's a picture of worship. All right? And it was, it was somebody that they, they elevated to this place of honor and respect and, and awe and wanted to love and adore this person. And since then, we have many, many, many uh, subsequent heirs to that throne who rise and fall rather rapidly. Uh, and it just illustrates, in every human being, there's this need for something greater than us, to bow before it and worship. Uh, since then, in the West, we've, we've made great heroes and idols out of sports figures, sports teams, pop stars, authors, I mean, all kinds of things, fictional characters, um, you name it. But the point is, this woman illustrates what's true around the world, that we all long to worship. Why? Well, because God made us that way. God designed us for worship. God put within us this heart that desires to acknowledge and see him and stand in awe and behold the wonder of him. We were created for that. Uh, You know, your cat was not. If you've noticed your cat, it doesn't go around in awe of anything. Not you, much less God, although it says all creatures in the end worship God. But animals don't have that, that sense of awe and wonder and devotion like we do. We were programmed with this hunger and this desire to worship God. Um, so this woman brings up this question, and she raises the issue about what are the important elements of worship? What is necessary for worship? What do we need to be worshiping God? And uh, she raises this question, you know, our fathers did it on this mountain. You Jews say it has to be in the temple in Jerusalem. I'm confused. What's necessary? Uh, they get this, and this actually comes from Scripture. Deuteronomy 12.5 says this. God is speaking to Israel, and he says, Rather, you must seek the Lord your God at the place of worship he himself will choose from among all the tribes, the place where his name will be honored. So Jesus had, or Jesus God had said, I will, I will set a place that will be sacred, and in that place you are to, to worship me. Uh, well, the, the Samaritans rejected uh, most of the Old Testament. They only kept the five, first five books. They rejected the rest of it. For, so for them, the answer that, to that question had to be found in Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they picked Mount Gerizim where uh, the tribes of Israel had gathered and called out blessings and curses over the whole land. Also one of the first places where it was believed uh, Abraham had worshipped. So it had religious significance. Uh, the Jews, on the other hand, picked Jerusalem, uh, the city of David. Uh, and Jesus says, his answer is pretty short and simple. He says, you know, the time is coming where that's not going to matter anymore. The hour is coming when it's not going to matter. Because that's not what's essential about worship. Um, you know, the truth is, uh, most of us understand that a place is not that significant uh, on one level, I think sometimes, though, we, we get a little weird about our places. Uh, and, you know, if you've ever been in a church building that's been around for more than, like, 50 years, it kind of becomes a sacred place. And if you suggest things like, you know, let's move the church, you know, you could be burned at the stake for that, really, in some places. They would just burn, take you out in the parking lot uh, because, you know, grandpa, great-grandpa, whoever, built this church. And it is sacred ground. God himself lives here. Don't mess with our church building. Or maybe you visited a church and you randomly sat down in some pew and, uh, you know, some guy, old guy, 195 years old, comes up and makes it very clear that that's his pew. 
you are sitting in. And he's worshipped in that pew for 99 generations. And you better not sit in his place, right? Uh, we can get kind of weird about our places. Uh, more than that, though, I think we get distracted sometimes by the f- not the place as much as the format of worship. Uh, we can wrestle and debate. Churches have been split over the kind of worship music. Do you sing new songs or old songs? Do you sing, you know, contemporary, can you have wor- uh, drums and guitars or do you have to have organs and piano? Do you have a choir or do you have worship band? Um, uh, do you, can you get excited and dance and shout and clap and jump up around or do you have to look sober and serious? Is worship about silence or is it about rejoicing? Is it about brokenness or is it about celebration? Uh, boy, you can, you can fire up some pretty hefty debates real quick in Christian circles by throwing out those questions. And uh, everybody kind of has a formula for what they think worship is about. And uh, in our day, I think it's good that worship has become a focus and it's a priority in, in many churches. It certainly is here. Um, but is the, is the worship set what worship is all about? If, if, uh, if, if the Samaritan woman were living in our day, would she say, Jesus, you know, our ancestors worship out of the old Methodist hymnal, but those crazy charismatics sing all these crazy praise and worship choruses. Which is necessary? Jesus would say, the hour is here when that doesn't matter. That's not what's important. Now, it's true that there are things that can enhance and help our worship, but that's not at the core of it. Those are not the elements that God is looking for when it comes to worship. The truth is, if you are uh, in the right place of worship, but we'll see what that is in a minute, you should be able to worship with any of those. You should be able to go to a Catholic church where they're chanting in Latin, and where you don't understand a word of it, but where if your heart is right, you can worship God in that place. Or you should be able to go to a Pentecostal church where they are just bouncing off the walls and it's so loud you think you're going to go deaf and they are having a good time and you should be able to worship equally well in that place. Because those are external things. And uh, Jesus says that those external things don't matter anymore because a new hour has come. Um, He says... um, And he uses the word specifically, a new hour has come. And throughout the Gospel of John, when when that term is used, it always refers to the cross. Uh, Jesus is saying that worship changes forever through the cross. That his coming has given a new kind of access to God that makes worship possible at a whole new level. And and, uh, his coming in, in human flesh, which we celebrate at Christmas makes God's revelation of himself to us uh, at a whole new dynamic and level, which changes the way worship is. No longer does it require a place, but because Jesus came, First Peter says that we are being made into a living temple, being built out of living stones, and that we are God's holy priests where we offer spiritual sacrifices that please him. Uh, we are now living temples, and through Jesus' death on the cross and through his work, we become the temple. And so we can say honestly that we take the place of worship with us everywhere we go. You know, it's interesting, in, uh, in this passage, I thought about, this woman asked a great question. She says, where are we to go worship? But I thought, you know, in, in our world today, if you meet somebody and you know they're a Christian, do you say to them, oh really, where do you go worship? Or do you say this? Do you say, where do you go to church? Okay, which do you say? I know for me personally, I never say, where do you go to worship? I would say, where do you go to church? Kind of an interesting uh, comparison, isn't it? Part of the reason for that, though, is that we don't go just to church to worship. I hope we worship here. If we don't worship here, we might as well just pack, you know, close the doors and pack it up, because that's what we ought to be doing. But... We now are living temples and worship is something we take with us everywhere we go. We no longer need to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. We no longer need to wait till Sunday morning to come to worship God. We have to be people who daily, moment by moment, are a temple where God is honored and exalted, where our life is filled with worship to Christ. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Philippians. He says, For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. 
We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. And Hebrews says this, Hebrews 9.14, Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify your conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Through Jesus' death, it opens up a whole new kind of worship. We don't need to go to a place to offer any kind of lambs or bulls or goats for atonement. Jesus did that. We don't have to go to a temple where God's presence dwells. He dwells with us personally now. And so it changes worship forever. But he also goes on to say to the Samaritan, he says, uh, in a way that Jesus, in his tact and diplomacy, could say, he says, you Samaritans don't have a clue what you're worshiping. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. The Jews know who they are worshiping. Uh, another important element of worship is knowing who it is you are worshiping. The place is not nearly as significant as who it is you worship. And he says to the Samaritan lady, you know, you, you Samaritans really don't know God. Uh, it was true they had the first five books of the Bible, they had rejected the rest, and really they had thrown out of God, a lot of God's revelation. They had thrown out a lot of God's truth about who he was and his ultimate plan of redemption for the world. Uh, you know, you read through the Old Testament, through the Psalms and through Isaiah and through many pictures uh, in, in Samuel and Kings, and they point to Jesus. You eliminate that, you eliminate a lot about God's ultimate plan that was fulfilled in Christ. It would be like us uh, throwing out all but the Gospel of Matthew. We would know a little taste of who Jesus is and who God was, but we would be greatly lacking in the full revelation of God. Um, Jesus came to this earth and he fully revealed God and made it clear who God is. An important part of worship is, is worshiping him in truth, as we'll see in a moment. We need to know who God is. Uh, imagine, it's, okay, here's a great weird and twisted picture of it all. Imagine that you were going to get married. And, uh, you know, you, you, actually, actually, let's say your friend's getting married and you go to your friend and you say, are you excited about your wedding? And he says, yeah, I'm so excited. You know, I love the flowers, I love the cake, the ceremony, the building. I just get so excited about the whole thing. And you go, well, like, aren't you excited about your wife? Uh, I, don't, I don't actually know her that well. For me, it's all about the, the ceremony. <laughs> you think, okay, you're going to have serious problems, you know, because, <laughs> like, the ceremony is really short, and the whole marriage thing takes a long time. And yet, for a lot of people, that's how worship is. They're all excited about the bells and whistles, about the trappings. They, they kind of miss the point that it's about the who of worship. It's about the personal relationship of meeting and connecting with God. All those trappings are very secondary to the relationship and to the intimacy of connecting and being in God's presence. And so that's what, what Jesus is saying. You've you got to know who. You've got to spend time developing a knowledge about the one you are worshiping. And finally, he, uh, he concludes uh, his, his little sermon to her with these amazing words. He says, The time is coming, the hour is coming, and is already here when true worshipers, genuine worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says, This is the kind of worshiper God is looking for. Uh, it's amazing to me that you know, God needs nothing. God did not create us because he needed to be worshipped. He did not create us because he needed our love. He certainly did not create us because he was lonely or bored. Okay? Uh, there's nothing from us that he needs. But it's, it's amazing to me that he does seek something from us. It says he is searching the earth for true worshippers. And true worshippers are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship him in spirit? Um, a lot of people have come up with interesting theories to that question. Uh, a lot of people think that it means to worship somehow in the Holy Spirit. Like we have an option to worship in the Holy Spirit or not in the Holy Spirit. And that to be an effective worshiper, we, worshiper, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, certainly I would agree with that. Uh, to worship in the flesh goes nowhere. Okay? In God's, God's plan. We must worship in the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that's really what he's talking about here. 
Uh, some people think that it has some idea about having the right kind of spirit within us, a spirit of humility, or a spirit of submission, or a spirit of seeking God. I think that also kind of misses the boat. Really, to understand this, we need to look at the parallel story in, in John chapter 3 of Nicodemus. Uh, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says very clearly uh, that to enter the kingdom of God, you must be what? You must be born again. You must be born from above. And that born again process takes place by what? By the Holy Spirit. To be born of the Spirit. Jesus says this, the truth is, The truth is, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. So don't be surprised at my statement that you must be born again. Just as you hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Uh, When Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, True worship is worship in spirit. He's talking about people who have experienced new birth in the spirit. We, now through the cross and through the work of God, uh, through the work of redemption at the cross, we have the opportunity to be made new in Christ and receive spiritual birth. He says this is necessary and essential because God himself is spirit. And so to truly worship him, to truly come before him, we must become spiritual beings who have received a new birth in the spirit. Uh, when you get back to the definition of what worship is, this idea of to kiss, one of the things that frustrated people of antiquity is uh, they recognized, especially the Greeks recognized, that these gods were very elusive, far-off beings who were not given human flesh. They were soul and they were spirit. And, you know, it's just hard to kiss something that's invisible. You know, and they were very frustrated with that. And they wrestled with that. And that's why they had to settle for kissing dirt instead of kissing the gods, because the gods were spirit, and they realized they were flesh. And uh, one of their solutions was that, you know, to explain it, that someday we would be set free from this body, and we would experience ultimate reality, which was totally spiritual. Uh, It was one reason that uh, the Gnostics had a problem with Jesus being incarnate, because they couldn't imagine a spirit taking on a a real human body, because that was confusing to them. And so uh, they wrestled with this idea, how do, you, how do you have intimacy and closeness with this God who's spirit when we're not? Well, Jesus says it's easy. The God who is spirit makes you spirit. And then you enter into his reality. You enter fully into the kind of being that he is. And you can have intimacy and closeness. You can adore him. You can, in essence, kiss the hand of God on his level. Uh, God makes us through the blood of Christ new beings that enter into the realms of heaven. And we don't have to wait to die to do that. We are spiritually born the moment we receive Christ. And within us, there is a new spiritual capacity to draw close and kiss the hand of God. It's interesting also that Jesus uh, uses the word, he says that, uh, that it's not about just worshiping a God. He says that those who want to worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And he sets in the context that this worship is now a new kind of relationship, not just with a God, but with a God who is our our Father, our Heavenly Father, into which we have a very unique and special relationship. And finally he says uh, that we worship Him in spirit, we worship Him in truth. Um, the greater our understanding of God, the more significant our worship will be. The more that we know Him in truth, the more genuine our worship will be. Uh, The more profound and meaningful our worship. And because of that, I, I believe it is so important that our worship be grounded in His Word, in His truth. The reality is, we may not have uh, idols, We may not make graven images that depict God, but the truth is we can still make God very much in our own image. We can create a God in our mind that is what we want him to be. And the truth is we do that a lot. Uh, We we shape and cast God into what we want him to be. Uh, This was just illustrated recently for me. I was at a, a seminar 
and uh, a conference, and the guy was teaching. And I can't, I can't actually believe that he said this. Uh, but he said, he was, he was complaining about certain characteristics that Christians claim God has, relating to his sovereignty and his control over the world. And uh, he had a problem with this because uh, it, it didn't for him explain well the, the, the existence of evil in the world. And he said, you know, basically, I can't take a God like that. I can't accept a God like that. And he, he didn't go all this way, but he implied that even if it says so in Scripture, I can't accept a God like that. And so he had, in my opinion, created a God of his own making. A God who was much less powerful and sovereign, who was much less in control of the universe, but was a much more likable guy in his opinion. Well, you cannot worship. God is not looking for worship like that. God is not looking for worship that picks and chooses the characters, characteristics of him that we like and throws out the rest. God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. One of the dangers we have in our day is that we've got very good at kissing God. We've got, become very poor at, at standing in awe of God. We've, we've, we've made God too much on our level. And we are too, far too comfortable coming into the presence of Almighty God. Uh, either one of those, if we leave it out, is not worshiping Him in truth. The Samaritans made a mistake because they threw out 90% of the Bible. We would make a huge mistake if we would do the same. We don't have to have God perfectly figured out. We don't have to be able to explain Him. In fact, the reality is that when we come to the truth of God is, there may be much of him we cannot explain. But we ought to stand in awe of him. The truth of God, of who God is, ought to elevate him to a place where we realize he is far above us. And he transcends us immensely. And it's only because he took the initiative to step out of heaven and to come and become human and to walk this earth that we can know him at all. Uh, we can know the truth about him greatly through studying the person and life and work of Christ. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the truth of who God is. Later in John, uh, Jesus says, I came so that the, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I have come to reveal fully who the Father is, to know him in truth. Um, one of the things I see happening with a lot of worship in our modern world is that it is very emotional and sometimes very powerful, but oftentimes very empty of content and truth. Uh, now, I'm not saying that you know, we have to go back to singing uh, you know, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is full of great truth. Um, but I am saying that truth in God's Word ought to be central in our worship. Let me just tell you, in closing, my own pers personal testimony of how this works for me in my own personal life. Um, for me, i found that the times I can connect deepest with God and when he becomes most real is when I really have gone deep into his word. Uh, there was a time in my life when I tried to worship God through music. Because uh, I do connect with music. I, I am not a great musician, but I enjoy it a lot. And it, I, it, it ministers to me in a powerful way. Um, and so I tried to worship God a lot through music. And it, it's good. And honestly, sometimes worship can express emotions and uh, images of God that words can't. But I found that that was very limited in its, in its depth. Uh, I, I started uh, instead taking God's word and really meditating on God's word. And I've talked about this before because I just believe in it so much. And I beg you to try this. Taking God's word and meditating on it taking one simple verse or truth about God and reflecting on it, chewing on it, uh, praying it, seeking it, seeking to understand what it means, uh, letting it pierce deep into your heart until it shines as a truth in your soul. And what I found when I do that, when I take the time to really come to grips with some truth about who God is, then when I I turn to music or I turn to psalms or I turn to expressions of praise, my worship is a hundred times deeper and more powerful. Why? 
because it has a context. It has a truth. It has a declaration about who God is that I respond to. Uh, Just this past week, I was meditating on Isaiah 49 where it says this. Sing for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on their suffering. Now, there's a truth about God that goes a long way. That God has compassion on those who suffer. Has anybody here ever suffered? Anybody? Okay, four of you have suffered. The rest of you are in big, are in big trouble because uh, it's coming soon. You know, you're going to suffer. When you're suffering, what do you need to know more than anything else? What I need to know is that God's compassion will meet me in my suffering. I need to know the truth that God is a good and compassionate God. We start, you start chewing on that concept, start meditating on that thought, what it means for God to be compassionate, for Him to care about when you when you are suffering. You know, it was the compassion of Jesus that took Him to this woman at the well, this woman whose life was clearly filled with suffering and heartache. And it was the compassion of God that He broke through all those cultural barriers to hand her living water, to meet her in her suffering. Powerful truth. Truth about God. It goes on, it says, Yet Jerusalem says, The Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. You know, when you're suffering, sometimes that's how it feels. I'm sure that's what this lady was thinking. I'm a wreck. I'm a sinner. I'm worthless. Why would God care about me? But notice what he says. Never. Never can a mother forget her... He says, never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? We've got some wonderful newborn babies. Uh, I'm betting that when we leave church today, coats will be left, Bibles will be left. I bet no babies are left. Okay? Now, I I left my children when they were a little older. Uh, They think it was an accident, but... uh, (laughs) But you don't leave newborns. Okay? You just don't forget them. All right? Can a mother forget her nursing child? It's inconceivable. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? Well, it's hard to imagine that. It's hard to imagine that. But even if that were possible, God says, I would never forget you. I would never forget you. There's a powerful truth about God. When you start wrestling with that and and chewing on that, that God will never forget you. No matter how miserable things may be for you, how tough, how difficult, how struggling, God is not off on a fishing trip, you know, and forgot to check his email about you. God will never forget you. God did not forget this Samaritan woman. He had a plan for her life. He says, see... I have written your name on the palms of my hands. Okay, that's what I do when I don't want to forget anything. Uh, I had a Palm Pilot. I could never figure out how to make it work, and the battery was always dying. So I've gone to this Palm Pilot. It's great. You just write things on there, and you don't forget until you wash your hands. Then it's off. But God has permanently written our names on the palm of his hand. He does not forget us. He didn't forget the Samaritan woman regardless of how messed up her life was. You see, when you come to the truth of who God is, His heart, His greatness, that we worship a God who cannot forget. You know, the reality is, I don't know all of your names. And you know, some of you told me your name ten times, and I'll still forget, because I am limited. God does not forget. He is a God who, in truth, is infinite in wisdom and knowledge. Uh, Do you have something to worship there? You know, when we put it in the context of God, who He is in truth, as those of us who have been made spiritual beings who connect with that, who can draw spiritually into His presence, we can be true worshipers when those two things go in our life. Uh, Those two words in the Greek are connected. You can't take them apart. It's not worship in spirit and worship in truth. It's worship in spirit and truth. It's a package deal. 
that as we come to grips with the truth about God, and we are becoming spiritual beings who walk in His presence, who are made in His, in, in his, the essence of His spiritual dynamic, enter into His reality of a spiritual world, we can become true worshipers. And the thing is, deep down inside, we want that. Too often we get it sidetracked on foolish things of the world. When we can, we can find the ultimate fulfillment of our existence, what we were made for, when we learn to worship God. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have made us specially and uniquely designed as God worshipers, as beings who in our, in our very nature have a heart and a longing to stand with awe and wonder at that which is greater than us. And Lord, we thank you that you are a being who is more wonderful and more beautiful more glorious than anything our eyes will ever see. Lord, we ask and pray that you'd help us to, to fill our life with the truth of you, to know you genuinely and deeply in our life. Uh, and then as beings, as, as children before our Father, who have been made your spiritual children, that we would learn to adore you, to draw in and kiss your hand, to kiss your feet as, as, the, as, the, as Mary kissed Jesus' feet before his death, to worship you, to adore you, to stand with great awe and wonder and reverence at your presence. God, we ask that you would give us a greater sense of your presence, that we would be better worshipers, for that is what you seek those who would worship you in spirit and in truth. God, make us great worshipers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.